Welcome to Places, Everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. In theater, television, and film, the initial story, the script or screenplay, is in my view the most personal of artistic expressions. Even when the story isn't directly about the writer's life, it's nonetheless an outgrowth of the writer's identity, interests, fears, discoveries, and experiences. A script, like a painting, is the creation of something from nothing. It is an artist's perspective manifested. Everything that comes after, directing, acting, design, is in service of the initial story. That's why playwrights and screenwriters have a unique position in the art and entertainment world. Personal expression is their livelihood. Itamar Moses has written books for musicals, scripts for TV shows, and many, many plays. He admits that while each has its merits, playwriting is thus far the one that has allowed him full creative control. Perhaps for that reason, it's also the arena in which he probes the most personal subject matter. As Itamar's career took off in his early 20s, he encountered a critical challenge in which his work became associated problematically with the work of a renowned writer. He wondered how he was supposed to prove that his creative voice was indeed his own. Now, as a Tony Award winner and an established writer himself, Itamar is able to reflect on how he has navigated a career in creative writing, continuously finding the vulnerable and personal space that leads to good storytelling. What does it mean for your personhood to be your livelihood? That's today's episode. But first, something interesting from the intersection of art and finance. The Writers Guild of America has urged its members to fire their agents, and thousands of them have followed suit, including prominent writers like Stephen King and David Simon. These writers claim that the Association of Talent Agents, which includes many influential Hollywood agents, has pursued a dubious business approach that prioritizes their financial reward over the writers they represent. The mass firing is a hard pill to swallow for many writers who are happy with their agents, not to mention those who are not famous enough to land new projects without an agent's assistance. At the heart of the debate is the issue that agent salaries have risen dramatically over recent decades, while writer salaries have stagnated. While a few writers have broken rank with the Guild and have chosen to stay with their agents, most of the writers seem to agree that the people who sell stories should not make more money than the people who write them. And now, here's my interview with Itamar Moses. Itamar, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for... Well, I would say thank you for having me, but we're at my apartment. Yes, so thank you we're for at coming Itamar's over with all of your home. <laughs> in lovely Park Slope, Brooklyn. Yeah. So I think of playwriting as one of the most personal expressions of oneself, maybe similar to that of a novelist. It's not like the writer's room on a TV show where many ideas are being tossed about. It's really a pure expression of one writer's brain and heart. So I'm wondering, as a starting question, when you get hooked on an idea for a play, describe the experience of peering into your personal universe as you start writing? That's a really good question. You know, uh, uh, plays start in all kinds of ways, but broadly speaking, either the starting point is peering into some aspect of my personal experience, like 
a thing that happened to me or, or a time from my past or a relationship from my past that I want to investigate or preserve or recapture in some way. And the problem with starting or the challenge of starting that way is that because it's something that happened to you or a memory of yours, um, every detail of it or every aspect of it feels important. So it's hard to tell what what works, what's relevant to the play, which, how to construct the thing. And so the challenge, my experience is that the challenge of starting that way is that I end up at first at least including all kinds of um, details that turn out to be irrelevant that it would never occur to me to include if I was making the thing up. It would be obvious to me not to include certain things if it was coming entirely out of my imagination. The other way things start is something that's not personal in terms of drawing on my own history or experiences, but but it's personal because there's an idea in there or something that that is compelling me. In that case, it's almost about finding the personal in it. Like if I'm compelled by something, it's, it's a safe assumption that there is something personal in it, that it's con- without me realizing it yet, it's connected to something personal to me. Well, so when but, you yeah. send a finished work to your agent or to a director you might want to work with, is that vulnerable for you? When I was, early, when I was starting out earlier in my career, I, I would feel vulnerable at earlier stages, bringing something to my writer's group or sharing it with a friend or you know, someone I want notes from, whatever it is, a director, you know. At this point, uh, when I, I'm eager to discover what doesn't work about it, right? Once you've gone through the experience a few times of having something be exposed in a more public way and then realizing that there were things you wish were better about it or mm-hmm. things that you fixed, that experience is so traumatizing <laughs> that um, anything that is uh, at all private and all of those phases before people are paying money to watch it are essentially private. It's not being reviewed, you know, strangers aren't really seeing it or, you know, you're not getting that collective group mind focused on it with no agenda other than they hope this play is good and works, right? Because <laughs> they want to see a good play. So I, I don't really feel vulnerable before that point by now because I'm eager to make use of those steps. But once, you know, the audience is coming in and uh, they're really going to watch the thing, it's terrifying. It really is. Like, it doesn't get easier. It's, a, it's, hard, for, it's hard for me to even be in the room. If, I, if there's an excuse not to be in the room, <laughs> I'll take it. Like, but if it's previews, you yeah, have no, to. Yeah, no, you have to. I ha- and I prefer to be behind the audience. Like it's very hard for me to be in the middle of the audience. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and that is vulnerability, absolutely, because you will live and die by just the feeling of electricity or lack thereof in the room. Or let's say the, 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 a preview is over and the audience is streaming out. Like, I don't want to be caught in the middle of that crowd of people because, you know, nine people could be like, that was really great. I really enjoyed that. And if one person just goes like, eh, that's all I'll think about for like the next, for the rest of the night, certainly, and maybe for weeks. Yeah, um, so, totally. uh, so yes, it's very vulnerable. Because vulnerable. getting to that vulnerable place is what makes writers probe all these ideas that creates interesting art. But I just always find it so interesting that that process is truly your livelihood. Right. It just sort of always amazes me. I think because directors and actors, um, designers and so on, as much as they bring their creative lens that may weave in personal references or knowledge points right. and so on, I think that the the writing is like that earliest and maybe purest expression of the soul or of the brain. Right. Uh, maybe that's very that's that's kind of you to think so. It might be true. I it's it's weird because 
in a way, the fact that a business and an industry has sort of cropped up around this stuff is is uh, confusing and distracting, right? I wouldn't say that I sit down to write and say to myself how my goal is to make myself as vulnerable as possible. Yeah. But my goal is to write something that feels truthful, right, or authentic and that will compel people or to share with – like I have a feeling and I want to share that feeling um, – and it turns out that your own vulnerability is a prerequisite for doing that, right? I don't know if this is a witticism or a tautology, but you can't fake authenticity, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, so. Uh, and I think if it's sort of like if you're nervous to tell someone you love a particular thing mm. and you're kind of building up to how you're going to say it and then you say it and it's okay. Right. That seems to me how – you might delve into a personal or a vulnerable topic in art and have it be received by an audience. Right. I mean, I think having experience and having gone through the process a number of times by now, you sort of, you learn. When it finally occurred to me, or I realized that all I had to do was was tell the truth, and that's the thing that would compel people the most, it felt almost like cheating. Uh Right? Like, oh, all I have to do is get out of my own way. Now, it turns out it's hard to do that. And it's hard to do it again and again. And you can't do it at the same sort of level of depth of vulnerability again and again. You have to sort of keep going deeper, which is why it's challenging. And you don't want to repeat yourself. Because as soon as you've done a certain thing, it it can start to feel like a trick or you start to feel like a hack. So it isn't, you know, this easy answer to everything. Oh, I just tell the truth. Like, what does that mean? What that means keeps changing. But... Having had that experience a few times, you do – you internalize the fact that when you write about the stuff that seems the most weird and idiosyncratic and personal to you, that those are invariably the things that people come up to you afterwards and say, like, stop reading my journal, you know. Uh-huh. Um, it turns out that everybody is – like, we're projecting externally to the world, but actually we're all the, we're all the same sort of analogous kinds of messes inside. So – a lot of critics have praised you for... Have they? <laughs> Go on. I think that, that one I came across. Yeah. For the way you get at the way young people speak. Mm. That's been something I've heard and read right. a lot. Uh, I think that's true, but I think it's a very particular kind of young person. Sure. Namely, the brainiest, most cerebral person you know. Mm. But with that kind of fragmented sentence kind of way, right. sometimes with a... Californian upspeak. <laughs> yeah. And I actually wanted to read a few lines from your play Completeness. Okay. With your permission. Sure. In which I mean uh, you'll you have you'll owe royalties, but uh Sure, sure, sure. Well I'm not an actor, so I feel like okay. it's <laughs> <laughs> um so in this play, a molecular biology student and a computer science student start dating. And this is um a line of his and then a line of hers. What if I could write an algorithm that interpreted your data better? Because this, all it will do is generate probable interpretations, highly probable. But still, now that I know more of what you, before you rush off to test predictions based on this, what if I could write something that would give you certainty up front? Then they start making out. (laughs) (laughs) And a beat later, she says to him, okay, can I tell you something? I wasn't sure that an algorithm would be useful to me, and actually I'm pleasantly surprised by how incredibly useful it turns out to be, but I sort of didn't care because I just wanted an excuse to hang out with you. Mm. That exchange is very (laughs) Moses-esque to me. (laughs) 
Or mosaic. You know, mosaic refers to Moses. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. So um, is that kind of combination, does that feel like a natural reflection of the way your brain and manner of speech combine to have that youthful cadence with intellectual content? Well, there's a couple, a couple sort of facets to the answer to that question. One is like you, the, the word youthful is going to stop making sense because <laughs> the characters talk like me and I'm 41, right? So yeah. we can keep redefining what mm. youthful is. Mm. So I think that that assessment of my work is going to have to shift its vocabulary to be like that maybe I write the way a certain subset of a certain generation speaks. But really all I'm doing, it's not really a conscious process. When I'm writing dialogue, the hard part is working out the sort of underlying story structure. Who's in the scene? What's the event of the scene? Like, what does everybody want? Why can't they get it? Like, that sort of, that sort of stuff. Once you've worked that out, either, you know, through difficult, you know, conscious labor, or it just comes to you and you're like, oh, I understand situationally what this scene is. Once you know that is the fun part and the easy part, and all I'm, I must look like a crazy person because what I'm doing is I'm just mouthing both sides of the conversation to myself as I type. I'm just talking. And I'm not even really consciously doing this, but I've, I have noticed that I do it. I'm just acting both sides of the scene and transcribing what, what, what I'm saying. You know, the, the ums and the likes and, yeah. the, and the cutting off and restarting the sentence again. It's just me. I know what this person's trying to express. And then I try to, and then I just sort of, you know, through impulse generate what they would say. And so you end up with a lot of characters who, who talk like me, but also not not all my characters talk like me. There's a, often I have some, I won't even necessarily know who I'm imitating, but it's 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 like, I think it's like having an ear, having an ear for dialogue is like having an ear for, for music. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a musical process. You, yeah. have, you, you can hear in your head the music of how a certain character talks and then so it's like, I don't know, changing the keyboard sound to flute and the <laughs> strings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so I think those comments from critics are, are, are a reflection or they're like a byproduct of, of the fact that I that I do it that way. But I don't sit down being like, how do young people talk? <laughs> yeah. And then I like go online and like YouTube young people and then like listen to it. And, yeah. Um, it's just me mouthing stuff to myself and then yeah. transcribing. Yeah. Well, it really comes out on the page. I mean, I've seen your plays and it. It feels very natural, and mm. I barely think about that aspect of it. Right. I think it's more when I read, and most people don't read plays, no. but I think it's reading your work on the page and seeing how many question marks there are mm-hmm. for statements. Yeah, is something that I that really stands out. And that might be, like you said, that might be a California thing. <laughs> music. And also, the I use italics a lot, uh, indicating what words what words I want hit. Yeah, some actors might resent that, but I've worked with a lot of actors who like it. It's sort of sc- it's scored, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of gives them a sense of. Um, an actor I worked with recently called it the ga- the gallop of it. He said, "Yeah, you just you just you hear the gallop of yeah, it." Yeah, that's cool. A certain way. That's cool, and I think it also ties in that kind of casual intelligence that your characters tend to have. They're not academic, even if they are in fact academic, right. <laughs> <laughs> like in this play. When you were a younger playwright, since you mentioned your age, let's just go there. Sure. You caught the it's not a secret. <laughs> you caught the attention of Tom Stoppard, a very renowned playwright, mm. who eventually wrote a preface to your early play, yeah. Bach at Leipzig. That kind of accolade seems so unusual so early in a career. Did that give you an altered kind of trajectory starting out or an altered kind of self-confidence about how the career would 
unfold? No, this is actually a very complicated little rabbit hole. So the first thing that happened was I was already sort of starting to have a nascent career as a playwright. I met Stoppard in, I guess, 2004, I want to say. Um, I'd had a, uh, I had two plays that were sort of circulating and starting to get produced, Bach at Leipzig, which you mentioned, and another play called Outrage. So Outrage had already been at Portland Center Stage in, in Oregon, and Bach at Leipzig had been at regional theaters upstate New York and in Florida. And like they were around. They were starting to happen. And I and Outrage was being produced, about to be produced at the Wilma, which is a big theater in, in Philadelphia. Um, so my career had already started. And I was on a panel at the Wilma. They were um, trying to do a panel of all the playwrights that they were going to produce in the following season. And for whatever reason, I think Dale Orlandersmith and Sarah Rule were the other two and couldn't be in Philly that day. And so the panel was just me and Tom Stoppard. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and so I met him that day and we ended up taking a train together back to New York. The Wilma, people at the Wilma had given him a copy of Outrage. And then later he read Bach at Leipzig. And so we had this sort had started this private, like he told me where he was confused by the plot of this one or wasn't sure this worked about that one. He wasn't just, you know, we were having like an interesting correspondence about them and about mm-hmm. writing in general. And the fact that that was happening at all was like an enormous thrill to me. So, yeah. so that part of the answer is Yeah, I yes. feel like you're being so cool about Well, this. it was a long time ago, but but and also it became complicated. So so for professionally for me, like when the other things that you mentioned, the preface and, and stuff happened. So so this was going on and I felt it was like an honor, a huge honor. And the fact that he was interested in talking to me about that stuff at all was like it gave me like a certain amount of confidence that I was, you know, that I was on the right track in some way, right? Um, then Bach at Leipzig opened off Broadway and Stoppard wrote uh, sort of a brief preface to the published script. What ended up happening, which in retrospect was very, very predictable, but in the whirlwind of like, I'm opening my play off Broadway, I'm in rehearsals, oh, he's going to write a preface, that's awesome. I think probably looking back, I had like some little misgiving about it, like, huh, this might put some kind of weird target on my back. Uh-huh. Uh, but I pushed that aside. I was like, what, am I going to say no, I don't want Tom Stoppard to write a preface to my script? Like, that would be insane. But what ended up happening was the the sort of reviews for the off-Broadway premiere of Bach at Leipzig were, um, a lot of them were really, really negative, which is fine and didn't necessarily have anything to do with Stoppard writing a preface, maybe. But there was sort of a drumbeat yeah. through them that like, there was a syllogism that seemed to underlie most of the reviews. And it went like this. Tom Stoppard likes this play. Therefore, this play is an attempt to imitate Tom Stoppard. Uh-huh. Therefore, the way to evaluate it is to judge how successfully it is or is not what I imagine Tom Stoppard's version of this play would be. <laughs> Since it isn't whatever I imagine Tom Stoppard would have done with this premise, therefore the play is a failure. And it's that's like actually four syllogisms. Like mm-hmm. there's a logical gap between every step. But that was that was sort of the tenor of the critical response to my off-Broadway review. So at the time I was like, this was a huge mistake. Mm. Um, and I should not have allowed this uh this preface to be part of the published script. And it was so, and, and it took this thing, which had been this gr- this wonderful private aspect of my life, and it became this like pub- public cudgel yeah. um, to hit me with. And, and then it sort of faded into the, the past and did another play and another and sort of my identity as a playwright emerged to some extent. But actually that was... 14 years ago and you will still see they're rare now but you will still see things written about me that that are that say things like tom stoppard launched my career which isn't true Mm -hmm. um if anything it sort of it was it was more of a hinder yeah it was more i mean privately no that was it was amazing 
but it was more complicated than that. So that it was a very strange thing that partly I was eager to emerge from the shadow of, but also I think intellectually I knew this at the time and it's become more of an emotional truth as time has gone on. Even then I was able to say, well, look, in the grand scheme, I'll take praise from the person I got praise from right? and criticism from the people I got criticism from over the inverse, right? Right. Um, and I think that's become more of an emotional truth over time. But it was really, it was really weird and complicated. Maybe Band's Visit is the thing that finally, something finally happened that penetrated a wider concentric circle than that, yeah. than that early noise. But I think for a long time, you know, for 10 years or so, when I had other plays regionally and, and musicals and several more shows off Broadway, it was hard for any narrative about me to penetrate other than, oh, wasn't he that guy who imitated Tom Stoppard? <laughs> Which was never true in the first place. Yeah. Like when I, I mean, I was a huge admirer of his. I love his plays. There is clearly some influence on, in particular, those first two, Outrage and Bach at Leipzig. Mm -hmm. But when I wrote Bach at Leipzig, I didn't have Arcadia on my desk. I had like yeah, yeah, Moliere yeah. on my desk. I had Oscar Wilde on my desk. Yeah. Like there's other Shaw, like there's other much, much more direct influences on that play. So it's like, I don't know. It was strange. And in a way, the most difficult thing for me, when some of my peers started to come out as writers, and some, you know, some of them were embraced and some of them took some early shots. I mean, it's always, you know, it's always a, a roll of the dice when you, uh, when a new playwright sort of appears on the scene. But I didn't, I saw almost no one else where, where the conversation around them wasn't like, okay, what is this person's voice like? Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had this this almost decade-long delay mm -hmm. in people, in, in, in the sort of premise being that I have my own voice. It was such a strange albatross because it was like, how do you prove a negative? Like, since yeah. it was never true that my right. goal was to imitate Tom Stoppard, how do you demonstrate that? I think part of it is when you're getting recognition at a very young age. I think like in the writer world, this is true yeah. for novels a lot, like that like wunderkind like persona is like yeah. so magnetic, maybe negatively or positively right. for Both, the audience. Sure. And I think also because with a play like Bach at Leipzig, you're really playing with form. Mm -hmm. um, this is not the play where you're doing the kind of dialogue. I, would, I mean, it has a lot of humor based on language, but yeah. it's not that modern day... No, I would you know? yeah, I would say the dialogue is musical in a different way in that yeah. way. It's, it's sort of this arch like musicality that's tr that's baroque intentionally. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean based on its subject matter. I think yeah. I've never actually seen it staged, but the times that I've read it, I feel like you're having this like delightful experience playing with form and, and structure. And I, I think because a playwright writing with form and structure, say say someone now like Brandon Jacob Jenkins, where each of his plays is so different in form. Yeah, yeah he's I, great. Um, I think I th he's been very highly praised, sure. but I think also people sometimes want to know, like, who is he? Yeah. So that can sometimes hinder a young playwright when they don't have that body of work. Um, that's that's an interesting observation, and I think it. I think uh, I, I think Brandon's amazing. I love what he does, and I think that um, at least in terms of. My plays, my first few plays in New York, for instance, having very different subject matter and formally being different and stylistically being different. I'm going to answer what your implied question was, I think, even though you didn't ask it. But that, yes, I think that it was difficult to put me in a box. And because there was this pre-existing box, which was the, 
based on the fact that Stoppard had written a preface, that in, in the absence of another box to put me in, that became the box to put me in, and it mm-hmm. didn't really fit. But if you sort of remove that from the equation and you look at Bach at Leipzig and then my next three plays in New York, which were the four of us, um, which is about like two writers, contemporary friendship, and Back, 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 which is about baseball players and steroids, and Completeness, which you just read an excerpt from, they're really different. I might have had a different problem in the absence of the of the, the sort of stoppered shadow, which is who is this guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you feel like, you mentioned coming off of this decade, do you feel like winning the Tony Award for the band's visit and having the show receive such overwhelming love and like adoration mm-hmm. um, deservedly, does that inoculate you in a sense? I have no idea. I mean, what's what's funny is in a way I'm the least qualified person to talk about because I am I am the I have the worst possible vantage point from which to tell how I am perceived, right? I don't know. I know with like the circus that's going on in my head, right? And trying to like focus on like gratitude instead of bitterness or like all the things we do as we mature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what, you know, what psychological standpoints make it easy for me to write and to do work that I'm proud of and what gets in my way. So I'm wrestling with all of that. I don't know. And so in terms of that circus, it's been it's been helpful, right? It's mm-hmm. nice to have something that that has succeeded in that way and 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 I feel really lucky. My sense is that I I was already and would have had to like mature as a person and a writer anyway, you know, otherwise I would and was getting bored with my own work and feeling like I was stagnating like you want to try different things. And I think what happened with Bands Visit maybe not coincidentally, coincided with like an internal process that was already going on. Um, mm-hmm. But, but which is a, in a way a total dodge of your question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But my guess is all of these things end up being double-edged. Yeah. You know? And who knows, maybe we'll talk again in, in 15 years and I'll be like, no one, no one wants to talk about anything other than fans visit. Yeah. It's been 15 years. <laughs> but for now, I'm not there yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, during those years where you are getting highly produced, but you're also receiving sometimes like kind of harsh feedback from like yeah. maybe a certain Times <laughs> writer, <laughs> critic, but you never took a break from the profession, or so it seemed. Right. Well, that's not true, actually, uh-huh. uh, because... Um, there, there's two things going on. One is like the work that is sort of becomes publicly available and the other is like how I'm spending my days. Uh-huh. And the honest truth is that not after, yeah, it took a while, but I, I think I had four plays off Broadway, Completeness being the fourth. And it, at a certain point, I started to feel like, and by the way, I, don't, I, I think there's a lot of wonderful theater critics. A number of them are friends of mine. I think they're really smart. And the idea that theater critics are all or mostly like, failed writers who are just bitter and want to take another writers. I think that's a myth. I think yeah. that's like an easy defense against when people are saying maybe insightful things about your work that you don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. But the Times is a particular case, and who is or is not the off-Broadway critic at the Times matters enormously to individual writers when you know you're on you have the sense that you're on their good list or their bad mm-hmm. list, or if it's a critic who seems to be keeping a good list and a bad right. list, and it's hard to move for one for the other. Um so I think that at a certain point, it became clear to me 
at this point, it is foolish for me to aggressively try to get um, new plays produced in New York. Uh-huh. Uh, and I and you would you'll notice that I haven't had one in like eight years. Yeah. And uh, they exist now. That's interesting. And they're starting to get produced regionally. And now I'm interested in bringing them here. But for the second half of my 30s, I focused on musicals and film and television. I just figured those were opportunities. Well, they also were. Right. But um, but time is zero sum. So I sort of at a certain point, it, it took. I think this happened unconsciously and then consciously. I don't mm-hmm. think I realized it at first, like, you know, burning your hand on the hot stove. And then yeah. anything, any project that you invest time in is time that you're not spending on another project. So it's like, well, I have these musicals I've committed to and uh, maybe I should staff on a TV show that, you know, like you're making these choices mm-hmm. and what you weigh changes and shifts over time. And I went through a period probably starting at around age 35 when I was like, okay, if all things being equal, um, I'm going to focus on musicals and television for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's funny is now I'm, I, I have a, I, I have a small backlog of new plays. Like I, I just premiered a new one, which I sent you to read, um, in Denver. And I have a couple of others that are maybe I'm going to try to have my first readings of, and it's not – I mean, all I'll say is that it's not a coincidence, like, that, that I'm so sort of tacking back hard towards this. Because it feels like there's um, – you know, you're never – you know, everything's you're, – you're never guaranteed or entitled to any kinds of reviews, right, good right. or bad. It's always roulette, mm-hmm. but you want to be putting your you, – at a certain point, if you feel like you're putting your chips on a hole in the table, <laughs> like, go to a different table. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. I have to say, though, that – that sounds so level-headed of you to have that reaction and that ability to slightly pivot creatively. Right. Rather ask than... My, ask my therapist and my girlfriend how level-headed so it was. <laughs> thank you to them for absorbing. It's like that kind of soil that absorbs yeah. like yeah. hurricanes. Who are two different people, I hasten to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but really, nonetheless, it wasn't like... You said, well, I have to just ask myself if writing is for me anymore. Oh, God, no. Yeah, no, yeah. nor did I ever stop having ideas for, like I said, and writing plays. There's two different questions. Like, if you think of it as like, you know, your inside, you know, whatever, your 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 vulnerable psyche and creative impulse is protected inside the castle walls or whatever. <laughs> like, you can make whatever you want down there in the workshop. Now I've changed metaphors. Unless there's a craftsman in the castle yeah. and he has a workshop. But like you can make whatever you want, you know, and then it's then there's a it's an entirely separate question to be like, I'm going to nudge this outside the walls and show it to people. Mm -hmm. Is part of that because working on a TV show and working on a musical, they're so collaborative. Yeah. And that the actual like script is so collaborative, not, not just the putting it up. That it maybe it doesn't demand that same kind of personal expression that brings you to that place where it matters so much. Um, that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> Definitely staffing on someone else's TV show, you're you're very protected. I mean, some people I think get frustrated and start to chafe against it because you'll never completely get the credit if it's not your show. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I like about it. Um, I wouldn't want it to be the only thing that I was doing, but I like it as a break from that level of vulnerability. Uh, yeah, you're being a team player. You're contributing to this overall thing, but you're you're a soldier in someone else's army. Similarly, if book writing were the only thing I was doing, I would be, um, I think, frustrated. But it's a fun challenge and you're a little bit protected because, I mean, I've said this before, but it's really true that like 
on a new play, on your play, the sort of creative department is you. Mm-hmm. On a musical, it's you and the composer and the lyricist, if that's a different person, and the choreographer and the director, kind of, and the lead producer. Like, yeah. like in a weird way, that's the creative brain trust. Yeah. The success of something like that isn't an ego boost in the same bullseye kind of way that it is with, totally. with something else, but you're also, you're protected. You're a little bit And also vulnerable. it's pre-existing subject matter. Usually, yeah. Yeah, not always, but usually most musicals are adaptations. In the case of Band's Visit, yeah, you know, it was it was this other person's sort of vision and baby that we then tried to, yeah. to, to, to sort of repurpose. Like if I were to create my own very personal TV show, like maybe that level of vulnerability would be would be more uh, or, you know, write and direct a very personal movie. Like there, there are ways in all of these forms to mm-hmm. reach that level of personal expression. Would you do that? Oh, you? absolutely. Absolutely. But like, first of all, you know, they don't make movies anymore. They'll start again, mm-hmm. but they don't make movies They right make now. movies for Netflix or for yeah, Amazon. Yeah, or with superheroes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it'll come back around. And then, and then yeah, you know, TV... I've, you know, I've been trying, but... Um, Have you ever pitched a, like, a pitch for a TV show? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know. I've written pilots on spec. Like, it's... Um, I have nothing but enormous respect for anyone who even gets a show on the air, let alone <laughs> makes it good, because having gone down that road a couple of times, it's it's amazing that anything gets made. The obstacles huh. are, are... Like, there's so many... Um, there are so many ways that something can sort of die on the way to to actually happen. But like we're in such television. a prolific time. Yeah. It's like no one can keep up with the content. No. But even it, that is like the tip of the iceberg of stuff people are trying to make. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I think it kind of relates to this idea of like aging and maturity and finding those that – um, like more su- like sustainable ways to interact with people. And that I'm reading some of your work in – in reverse order, mm. like I just read your newest play, The Whistleblower, and then going backward, I'm just noticing some of these kind of like themes of aging and maturity that may be subconscious to you mm. while writing. But in The Whistleblower, a main character spending most of the play wondering what his life has amounted to mm. so far, going backward to graduate students on the brink of discovery going backward to aspiring young writers, mm-hmm. going backward to high school students and their teachers. Right. And you had mentioned that the, that high school play, which is called Yellow Jackets, you've decided to return to it about a decade later and substantially revise it. I'm interested in, in the reason. Perhaps now you have more of the perspective of the teachers. What is the idea there? Yeah. So Yellow Jackets is a play. I'm from Berkeley, California originally. And uh, Yellow Jackets is a play set at Berkeley High, which was my high school in 93, 94 when I was a student there. And I wrote it as a commission for Berkeley Rep. And, uh, and you know, Berkeley High is the only public high school in Berkeley. It has 3,000 students. It's like uh, incredibly sort of racially diverse. Um, and so it's this microcosm of Berkeley as a city and then also sort of of urban America. But when we did the show at Berkeley Rep, it was 2008. The play was taking place about 14 years before when we actually were in time. Turns out it's not long enough for something to, like it's too long for it to be about now, right? But it's mm-hmm. somehow not long enough for it to be like a period piece that's about, Yeah. you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and there were other, I mean, it was a first production of a new play, so there were just things that I you know, and it's a complicated play with a lot of characters. So it was just something I, you know, I, I needed to see it with an audience. And I was like, oh, I see how to make it better. But the other thing that happened was I realized that now that it's 
25 years in the past when the play is set. It's actually now about how the conversation happening in Berkeley and at Berkeley High School around race and class in 1994 is the national conversation now. Uh-huh. And that that might be something that's just true about Berkeley is that whatever like the cutting edge of progressive argument is in all of its sort of passion and inspiration and ridiculousness uh, in equal measure, Berkeley is like, you know, a couple decades ahead uh, or one of the places that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that so that's really what happened is I was like, oh, there's also a conceit in the play that that um, you cast it with young actors, but they double as the teachers. So yeah. it like, looks like a high school play where like someone throws on a suit jacket that's like a little too big and they're the vice oh, principal. I gotcha. um, yeah. And so also with this gap of time, the teenagers in 1994 are now the age of the teachers uh-huh. in the play more or less. So there's something about all of it sort of idea content and its formal conceits that makes a play set at Berkeley High in 1994 kind of make more sense n- now as a microcosm or an allegory or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the play seems like it's about tribalism Sure. in a liberal enclave. Yeah. Is that I mean, I the tribalism is something that I'm thinking about a ton right now because I think it sort of explains so much about what's going on. And I don't just mean like, oh, tribalism explains why people who disagree with me think what they think. Mm-hmm. It also, you know, it's also been, I think, a wake up call for a lot of us about like the tribalism that we're all trapped in without realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just assume our own ideas are rational and well thought out and justified with evidence. But that doesn't mean we're immune to tribalism. So I wouldn't have said that when I first wrote the play because I wasn't thinking about things in those terms. But yes, I feel like that's, I don't know, like like it was almost, when I did the play before, it was almost too soon to be about anything other than me writing about my high school experience. Mm-hmm. And now it feels like it's about something larger. Mm-hmm. And I think also coming off of a lot of your work where there's no obvious reason to cast non-white people, mm. like that you could. Yeah. In completeness, there's no reason for them both to be white. No, but and they in, often haven't been. And they haven't been, and yeah. that's great. And that yeah. probably is the director making a choice or the theater. Yeah. Uh, but the original productions were not your musical work. Right. Um, but the straight plays have been ones that seemingly, unless the director or you specify. Yeah, I mean, that's part of a larger is a problem one. is that pe- people making the assumption that uh, – that the de- de- default casting is white people, right? Unless you specify non-white, uh, and I guess I guess it's a responsibility that the playwright can take on and be like, well, and and in the case of, uh, and I have in in my plays where, as in Yellow Jackets, but also in 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 Back Back Back, in in Celebrity Row, and all the ones you you didn't read, um, got it. W- w- it's sometimes <laughs> it's it sometimes is called for by who the character is and something got specific it. about them, but. But uh, but yeah. Did you ever I, say but I, um, like any race? Like yeah, we have any race? No, I'd encourage people to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 in subsequent productions of Completeness and the Four of Us, like it's happened, and it's always I think it's always really interesting and exciting that when plays can sustain that. So thinking about your playwriting in relationship to three musicals mm. that you wrote back to back, when you work on a musical, when you're the book writer, mm-hmm. you're responsible for the dramatic structure of the piece. But maybe less glamorously, you're responsible for the dialogue between the musical numbers. Right. <laughs> um, so whether a play, whether a musical works entirely is so much on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. But people don't always walk out saying, like, that dialogue was amazing. Right. In the band's visit or whatever. Yeah. 
So I think it involves... There's like 11 lines of dialogue in the entire show. <laughs> so, and so frequently, remember like when Hamilton won best book and people yeah. were like, what does that even mean? Like, yeah, it's the structure. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it involves that kind of humility of knowing what the poignant moments will be and knowing, rather the knowledge of it, but the humility of relinquishing those moments to songs. Now that you're returning to playwriting after eight or so years... <laughs> I'm wondering how you rethink poignant moments in a play oh. of a sort of achieving the poignancy that you know from experience songs can achieve. Um, well, I mean, I, I never, I mean, I never stopped writing plays. That's a good question. I guess I just feel the biggest thing that I consciously feel when I sort of go back to playwriting after I've worked on musicals for a while is... I mean, there's two sides to this coin. One one thing I feel is relief and excitement to have everything under my control. Because when you're making a musical, everything's sort of a negotiation. And so it's, it's, it's really nice to not have to sort of hand the reins over to the song partway through the scene. Or to feel like, oh, well, we haven't had a song in too long, so we need one. Mm-hmm. Um, or to feel like, I really wish we had a song here, but we don't. And now the scene work is going to have to do work that it really can't or shouldn't have to do. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're, you're rehearsing the numbers and the choreography and like there's all of these moving parts to get in. I want to change two lines of dialogue. It's like, well, we can schedule a schedule a half hour to rehearse that next Wednesday, yeah. you know, and there's this change I know will make something better and I have to watch four more previews before I'm even allowed to have the rehearsal time to make that change. So it's like a relief not to have all of those other sort of balls in the air. But the flip side of it is then then you're like, oh, wait, it's really all on me. Yeah. <laughs> like there's nothing happening here other than what I'm, you know, writing dialogue-wise or story-wise or structurally in the script. I don't know. Not everything should be a musical. Like most things shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And stories are perfectly capable of like reaching emotional peaks or dramatic peaks yeah. without songs. I'm, I don't write music, so it's not – it's, it is amazing the way that just a few notes of music can slice through your psychological defenses and yeah. just make the audience feel a certain thing. Yeah. It's amazing. But I don't miss being able to do that when I'm writing a play. I don't mm-hmm. know why, but I don't miss it. It doesn't feel like, oh, I wish I had this other tool because that tool's not not relevant, I think. Well, you know how you were do. saying earlier that form is a kind of music or mm. a musicality to it? Yeah. Because you've worked in different sort of artistic realms – and you've been doing it for a while and you've had the ability to work with form within playwriting mm-hmm. and have had the ability to change form entirely by working in collaboration, either on TV or in the musical format. Mm-hmm. So the the way that you know now from all this experience of how to build toward a certain crescendo, yeah. and it need not be a musical crescendo, yeah. Um, to me it seems like it would be more sort of crystallized in your brain because you already like playing with form. Right. So I'm just wondering what you have taken with you from those experiences, if anything, in new playwriting experiences. Yeah, that's a good, that's a, that's, I think that's, I think that's well put. I think that like in a musical, they're not song. We don't call them songs really, right? We call them numbers, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, uh, that seems to me a broader term. And you can think of all kinds of things as, as numbers, like even in a non- musical like you feel like you've entered a, a a stretch of your play of a scene where 
things have gotten a little bit wild or yeah. some, something is unleashed and that's almost like the equivalent of a number or something. I don't even mean yeah. things are hectic necessarily. I just mean something is emotionally loosed. Uh, Doesn't that happen in completeness? I yeah. mean, there's a moment where the- Well, that's a very sort of, yeah, there is there is like a formal breakdown to uh, like three quarters of the way through. Yeah, yeah. is that still in, in yeah. the current version? You know, I did a, a, a new production in Philadelphia a couple of months ago uh, where um, where I made some change. I'll, I'll just say that like the, yeah, the climactic sequence is a little bit different now. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah. But yeah, so there's a moment that is sort of s- without speech. Right. Because the emotions have been heightened, which is what a number does in a musical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just there's no instrumentation coming in. But that seems to be kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that's another thing that might might be true is that uh, in a in a non musical play, if you've done it right, what would what would be the height of like you know swelling music in mm-hmm. a musical are the most silent moments. It's actually mm-hmm. the opposite. Mm-hmm. Like an emo, it is emotional. Well, you're disrupting speech. Yeah, and and in emo- both cases. and what fills that silence is emotional fullness. Yeah. Right. The silence is so emotionally full that the audience is engaged by nothing other than like the underlying stakes of what's been constructed. When words fail, people either have to sing or they have to shut up. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what it is. One thing that I always really enjoy in interviewing you, and I think this is our third interview. That's right. Yeah. Um, is that any idea that I put forward you've thought about 20 times previously. <laughs> no, no, I don't know if that's true, but I'm, uh, g- I'm glad to create that. <laughs> least, am I the person you've interviewed the, is three the, a record for one subject? It is. Or? It is. Yeah. I know that the band's visit closes this It does. Weekend. It is. This is our final week on Broadway, and, and then the national tour starts. Uh, yeah. Coming to a city near you. So it's going to have this whole other life, but yeah. it's been, I think, such a successful and I hope really rewarding experience. It really has, and, and in a totally unexpected way. If you had asked me what I thought was going to happen, and maybe you did because we talked before it opened at the Atlantic, <laughs> I would have been like, I hope we have a nice off-Broadway run at the Atlantic. And yeah. then other people want to do this weird, quiet, strange little show. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening with it exceeded like the wildest fantasies that I had allowed myself to have. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well, with other plays and shows and all of the above, I, um, I just wish you so much luck and I, I'm excited to see what they are, and for you to continue to find yourself. (laughs) Thank you. Likewise. (laughs) Likewise. Through this podcast, man. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.